climate change is already hitting home. And young people are going to experience the effects throughout their lifetimes. This is Higher Ground. I'm J.D. Allen. And I'm Sabrina Garone. This time, we're in Connecticut's largest city, Bridgeport. It's one of the youngest places in the aging state. So we've teamed up with a group of middle school student scientists. We're putting the microphones in their hands to tell their story. We get taught about climate change. We know about the damages that it will eventually do, but some grown-ups now don't even know what climate change is or what they can do to help. We'll find out how they're recognizing the global climate crisis in their neighborhoods and what solutions they might be able to identify. Exploring these solutions might give their home the best chance at survival and help save vulnerable places where millions of people call home. Coming up next, we get to higher ground. Distributed by APM, American Public Media. It's a chilly day. A group of teenagers are bundled in coats. They have recording kits dangling around their necks, headphones over their ears, and microphones in hand. Right now, but it works. You can play around. So you know it's on because the red light's on. Um, so We're giving them the microphones to tell their story. I have the mic, so I feel like I have to be funny, you know? I need to be comedic, humorous. Yeah, yeah. Let's make some weather joke. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I don't even know a weather joke. That's Taya and Skye. We're on the trails behind a local science center with seven of their friends, including Corinne, Abril, and Taylor. It's quite chilly outside. How do you feel about the fluctuating weather in Connecticut currently? It's torture. One day it's hot and I'm enjoying summer and then the other day it starts snowing. Do you want it to be over with? What's your favorite season? I like summer. You like summer, why? Uh, because it's hot and it's not cold. What if it's, like, always summer? I would die. I hate summertime. We're outside to make observations to see Connecticut's largest city through the eyes of some of its youngest residents. Wayne, let's, let's interview you. Yep. Have you seen anything interesting that you think we should write down? Well, certainly. Did you write down the fungi that we found and uh, the, that little plant? Let me check. These kids are interested in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. And the class is being led by marine biologist Michelle Lewis. So I will need... The students call her Miss Michelle. At least two people who are going to record how cold it is, the temperature. She has a bucket of thermometers, guidebooks for flora and fauna, and devices to track wind. Do I have anyone who actually wants to write down any of the data we collect, or is that just going to be me? Okay, excellent. The temperature is... 13 to 14 degrees Celsius. Uh, the clouds at the moment, we believe, are nimbostratus clouds. Oh my god, is it true that if you like lick your finger and put it in the air, you can figure out where the wind is coming from? <laughs> I think, I mean, I don't know. There's no wind. We're asking how young people recognize and adapt to the effects of climate change in their neighborhood. Like extreme weather and rising sea level. A 2022 United Nations scientific report describes the need for climate action from governments big and small as now or never. Cities in particular are being choked by increasing carbon emissions and shorelines are expected to recede several feet due to sea level rise. This is a one-two punch for young people from a coastal city like Bridgeport on the heel of New England, just 50 miles from New York City. Why haven't we done anything sooner to stop it? Since we knew it's a problem and 
we know is gonna eventually catch up to us and it's gonna bite us in the butt. Right now, these kids are observing changes to their environment. In this after-school program, they act as scientists. So we're gonna work through the scientific method, form hypotheses, experiment with our ideas, and look for help to peer review. The goal is to identify challenges and come up with local solutions. To do their part in addressing a global problem. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Miss Michelle way. says the work that the students are doing is actually a common environmental practice called a bioblitz. It's a survey of the biological diversity of a park, beach, or other natural area. For instance, you might record your observations of as many plant and animal species as possible. We are entering a place where we have to be quiet because we don't want to scare our deer friends. <laughs> there are in fact no deer. Our deer friends are not here. In this case, while I'm in the field with the kids, we're using the data they collect to learn about their neighborhoods. So that means exploring what creatures live in their city. Can you guys hear that? There, that is a bird. Most of the sounds we're hearing is bird, though it wouldn't surprise me if a few of the chirping noises we heard were actually squirrels. Squirrels do occasionally make bird-like sounds. That is very interesting. I did not know that. I did not know that either. I don't know what I no, thought like, I think squirrels sounded like, but... Has moved on. Also, if you look in the trees, you may find nests. Up. I just saw one fly through the trees. Yeah. I want to take a picture. You can find them. I think there's a nest in one of those trees over there. It's a red cardinal. I want to put that. It's in the tree. It just flew. I'm giving you a... <laughs> it's in the tree. It's right there. Oh. Look, there's another one up there. Oh, I'm putting... I'm like pointing without the microphone. I will tell you, we do have a family of red-tailed hawks in the area. Yeah. Oh my god. I've seen yeah. a hawk in my neighborhood, right? It was on my street, actually. The hawk attacked a small bird. Yep. I just witnessed murder. <laughs> it's the circle of life. That's it what is. they do. So, well, Michelle, I mean, why might we want to know more things about what's around us? Why, why are we out observing so much? Well, looking at what animals and plants are nearby can give you an idea of how healthy the ecosystem is. Um, a good, robust um, number of animals, different types of animals and plants, generally means you have a healthier ecosystem. If you have an area where there's only like one type of plant and maybe one or two types of animals, that's not really healthy. Um, that does happen a lot with human interference. We like to plant certain types of plants and trees and things like that, and that could drastically change what's there. As we're headed back inside, we cross over a bridge to a small creek. Do you think there's any lost treasure in this water? I highly doubt we would find lost treasure, though this is a place that people go on field trips for, so it wouldn't surprise me if there's a coin or two in here. <laughs> I, I found a Band-Aid. Oh, there's a Band-Aid. Band-Aid. Oh that would happen on occasion, too. All right, we can move further There is a plastic bag on the ground. I think that says a lot about society. It's stupid that big corporations aren't doing more to help prevent uh, our Earth dying because their factories and their work is probably what's contributing most to the pollution everywhere. And I think that a lot of companies try to do a lot in, uh, like, advertising that they're eco-friendly and everything. And, I, yeah, I think they're trying to advertise the fact that they're very eco-friendly, but, yeah, but when they're really not. And I think it's stupid, because why would you 
tell people that you're trying to help the earth when you're not. When you can just help the earth and tell people that you're helping the earth and you're actually helping the earth. Before we head inside with the kids to talk more about climate change, let's set the stage about who we are and where we're coming from as we tackle this enormous challenge. Our new teammates at the Discovery Science Center and Planetarium are all students of color who come from public schools in the Bridgeport area. Sabrina and I are both white, middle class, a little beyond our teenage years, and went to suburban public schools in New York. Our first goal in coming together is to create a space for these students to consider the global climate crisis. They wanted to get behind that microphone and they want to talk about it, and they want to talk about climate change as it affects them in an urban environment. That's a crucial point. Discovery's executive director, Erica Eng, makes about the kids' participation in this podcast. Giving them the opportunity to take in the information, filter it in their own way, and give it back to us, we can really see what they're seeing. It helps give us a lens, and it really helps us sort of titrate what we're doing because these kids are so brilliant. These are the ones that are going to be running the world, right? Let's support that in as much as we can. The first time I thought about climate change was when Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth came out. We have to act together to solve this global crisis. We were about their age when the 2006 movie was released. Our ability to live is what is at stake. Seems pretty nerdy for this to have that kind of impact on you. Well, actually, that's not the first time I was passionate about the environment. He's a hero for Earth. I grew up watching Captain Planet and his team of planeteers who defended Earth from pollution. Pollution caused by criminals and villains. The eco-villains are out to wreak ecological havoc. Let our polluting powers combine! Who now look strangely like crooked politicians, greedy businessmen, and deadly poachers. Yep, nerdy. Captain Planet! Captain Planet, mission to save Earth. The point is, I learned from a young age, probably from the TV and movies I watched, that I can do my part to protect the environment. The Discovery Science Center is this group's connection to their environment. What was your favorite thing about this walk? My favorite thing about this walk, um, I really liked the way that we were able to explore kind of the world around us. Um, while it's kind of cold today, um, we are still we're starting to see the signs of spring. What about you? Uh, I guess just exploring this part because I've never been around this part of Discovery. We walk through the doors, past the gift shop, and down the halls of the Science Center to a classroom next to the planetarium. Downstairs, we have access to a massive globe. The kids have used it before, but... I'm awestruck. They click on the display and the projectors flicker. Images of the rotating Earth change to show rising sea level projections, industrial air pollution hubs, and social networks of people. We're more connected nowadays. We have more ways to communicate and find out information from other parts of the world than we ever have before, which means we can affect change on an easier scale than maybe before. We can reach out to people across the world and together come up with something. Because while there are some things you can do locally to help out, helping out the world is a global effort. The concept of climate change on a global scale can be overwhelming. Denise has been quiet so far. There's so much more things happening in this world. It's just like me trying to warm up my house and trying to not die because of the cold. It's not going to change the fact that the world's already dying, and it's like just a bad place to be in right now. That sounds pretty scary. Yeah. 
when you put it that way. I'm, I'm going to be honest. Why am I going to focus on something that's so problematic? I'm just going to cause more wrinkles to my face, which is so unnecessary. So it'd be hard to think about what climate change means to you, the individual on a local level. Especially when the narrative tends to be, well, a bit doom and gloom. Just think, these teenagers have lived through a lot already in their 13 years. A global pandemic, America reckoning with racial injustice, the impeachment trial of a president, heat waves, yearly superstorms, wildfires every summer, it seems, on the West Coast. And a now or never call to action to stem climate change. Why isn't all of this information spread out to everyone else? Like, some kids now are getting information on climate change, like us, we get taught about climate change. We know about the damages that it will eventually do. But some grown-ups now don't even know what climate change is or what they could do to help. We'll spend weeks analyzing the discoveries our student scientists have made about their changing environment. Their inspiration will come from their time at home, in school, our excursion outside together, and research over the next few weeks at the Science Center. We're going to focus in on a few of our students' perspectives, from concept to problem solving, and eventually look at the real-life implications of what these climate challenges and actions mean. Until then, we have homework to do. So what I would like for you to do is next week, think about something that is impacted that you really care about. This is Higher Ground from WSHU Public Radio, distributed by APM, American Public Media. I'm J.D. Allen. And I'm Sabrina Garone. Welcome back to Higher Ground from WSHU Public Radio, distributed by APM, American Public Media. Through their research, the kids have found that tackling climate change starts at home. And they've got ideas to make their home more livable in the face of climate change, including improving the quality of air, land, and water. Because I think no matter how much we, as not corporations, people, uh, try, we're never going to match the amount of destruction that big corporations and factories are trying, are, are, are making. So I think we can help by uh, doing all the things to help the environment, but I don't particularly think that it's going to counteract uh, those factories. Okay, Taya, let's begin there. With air. Incidentally, creating the right to clean air, land, and water is the subject of new legislation being considered in a dozen states, from Kentucky to Vermont. In 2021, New York, next door to Bridgeport, became the sixth state to adopt an environmental rights amendment into its state constitution. In the last couple of years, 13-year-olds everywhere have been thinking a whole lot more about air quality. Yeah, if, if COVID was in this room right now and we're all wearing masks, we'd be safe. Wayne and the rest of us are actually still wearing masks as we speak. We're working on these interviews in person after these middle schoolers spent the better part of the last two years learning from home. They know who is most vulnerable to respiratory illnesses, those already sick, the elderly, children, and people with weak immune systems. Sky also knows after weeks of research that air pollution can have a similar effect. So where does the pollution come from? It comes from, like, cars and factories, stuff like that. So do you think that there is a, like, a lot of air pollution where you live, or? I mean, kind of. Why kind of? 
because like I'll be outside and a car would drive by and you would smell all the exhaust and stuff coming from the car. What made you interested in air pollution? Because it seems like it seems like a really big problem when it comes to pollution because I know there's also like we breathe in air and stuff like that. So <laughs> I wouldn't want to like get sick from something that I can't really help. Taya is quick to remind her that teenagers do contribute to air pollution. Even though they don't drive yet? For example, they use electricity that's created with fossil fuels and shop online for goods that get shipped from around the world. Skye is worried about those vulnerable to poor air quality, like pregnant people and their babies. Bridgeport is among the youngest cities in the state. Well, in the babies where their mom has, like, breathed in bad air, it causes... Asthma, lung cancer, leukemia, COPD, pneumonia, birth immune system defects, cardiovascular diseases, and premature death. That's a lot of respiratory problems. What does that mean for baby? One in 33 babies born in the U.S. were born with a serious birth defect due to air pollution. That's messed up. Well, Connecticut has high rates of greenhouse gas emissions that contribute to climate change. Motor vehicles make up 40 percent of those carbon emissions. That's according to data Sky is looking at from the American Lung Association, which advocates for policies to reduce air pollution that harms public health. You know, sometimes our region gets called uh, the tailpipe of the nation. That's the Lung Association's Michael Silback. Fairfield County in Connecticut has the most ozone pollution in any county on the eastern seaboard. Every year, the association grades states on how clean the air is. Bridgeport in Fairfield County gets failing scores. This is a gross and unhealthy reality for people living around the New York City metro area. And when ozone is breathed into the lungs, it's almost like getting a sunburn on your lung tissue. Ozone is the first of two major ways to measure air quality. Particle pollution is sometimes called soot. These microscopic particles. And when they're breathed into the lungs, it's almost like taking a piece of sandpaper and rubbing it on the lung tissue. Ouch. As we've moved towards solar and wind and having strong pollution controls, we're seeing less of those precursors rolling into the ozone formation. But we need to make sure that we are reducing the amount of pollution that comes from those power plants hundreds of miles away. To Sky, a solution for reducing carbon emissions that create smog is to shift away from gas-powered vehicles. I think electric cars are cool, but right now I don't think they're as affordable for everyone. So, so that's something that we can do um, to try to power the, the ways to get around. Are there other ways to get around? You can bike, walk if it's not far. Do you think that it's easy to to bike and walk um, where you live? Yeah. That's good. Because it's not far, and I enjoy walking and riding my bike a lot, so it doesn't bother me. And now you can't drive yet, but um, people in your family can. If you like to walk, but they don't, how might you explain the benefits of walking in this way? I would say that one, it's healthier, it's cheaper, especially since gas is so expensive now. (laughs) 
And I would explain to them all the problems that it causes. And the problems it causes are severe for people living in Bridgeport. Connecticut's asthma rate surpasses the national average. More than 200,000 adults and 75,000 children have asthma in the state. Communities of color are disproportionately impacted. According to the Bridgeport Child Advocacy Coalition, nearly 4,000 middle school children and younger visited the hospital in 2020 due to asthma. That's due to environmental conditions, but also secondhand tobacco smoke. The solutions young people have come up with... Walk, ride a bike, or take public transit when you can, buy local to reduce freight emissions... ...are common sense if the community as a whole recognizes the benefits, and if policymakers work to provide the infrastructure to make these adaptations possible. When you start prioritizing money and profit over life itself, over what can help grow life, what can help sustain life, what can help nourish life, then we keep seeing different things that harm communities come into place or go into fruition. This is environmentalist Catherine Morris. She's going to help us peer review our students' research alongside her environmental justice work. So when we traditionally think of environmental justice, we think of, yes, there was a disregard of life that allowed you to continue putting an incinerator here in walking distance from a home or a gas plant here or a coal plant here. Kat is in her early 20s. She grew up in New Jersey, then middle school in the suburbs of Bridgeport. We've been living in predominantly white areas that were more like um, middle class, upper middle class, high income. And then I had been experiencing interpersonal racism a lot more than systemic racism or what I now understand to be systemic racism. So I think that's part of why I have such an affinity for nature. Before heading to the city. So I say that definitely changed when I moved to Bridgeport and it was kind of striking to me that no one else found it weird that we weren't spending as much time outside or whatnot. There we were living in this like kind of six family duplex apartment and there was like one tree in the front yard, maybe one in the backyard, you know, but it, there was no grass in the backyard or anything like that. And the sidewalks were littered in a way that was like very frustrating to me because I'm like, what is this? <laughs> like, what are we doing here? Growing up surrounded by green space, Kat didn't realize what she had and until it was gone. I would notice, you know, even in the summer times, it was really just sitting on the porch. Like that was kind of the extent of it, maybe going for a walk maybe taking a long walk to find that one little swing set playground area that's like next to that one bodega over there. And that was kind of the extent of it. But Bridgeport does have its outdoor gems too. Between all that abandoned industry is actually a whole lot of parks. In fact, that's how Bridgeport earned itself a nickname, the Park City. It's the Park City for a reason. It's gorgeous. You'll find a lot of greenery in select spaces. We'll learn more about those later. Almost all of Connecticut's coastline runs along the Long Island Sound. Home to about 4 million people between the New York side and the Connecticut side, all being threatened by the changing climate and rising sea levels. Bridgeport is home to about 150,000 people. Including myself at one point for a couple years post-college. There's just a greater density of people here. There's a lot more impervious cover. We have rivers coming in and there's a big influx of sewage here. 
That's Long Island soundkeeper Bill Lucy. He probably knows the sound better than anyone since it's literally his job to monitor these waters. Shellfish, sharks, birds, seals, the occasional whale. This body of water is home to lots of wildlife too. And while it looks like the ocean, technically it's one of the region's largest estuaries. That's a place where salt water from the ocean meets fresh water from rivers. And I knew about Bridgeport as being one of the areas that has typically been ignored as far as pollution. Um, you've got air quality issues. There's a lot of industrial stuff going on here. Um, and I knew the water quality uh, wasn't great here. So when I had the invitation to come up here, it's like, let's go right into one of the most challenged harbors, challenged body of waters in Long Island Sound is Bridgeport Harbor and Black Rock Harbor. And that's what sets Bridgeport apart from other places in Fairfield County too. It's a poor city in what is Connecticut's wealthiest region, home to famously exclusive communities like Greenwich, Westport, and Darien. With shipbuilding and whaling in the mid-19th century, Bridgeport would eventually become a manufacturing hub. But by the 1980s, many of those jobs moved overseas, and the closure of Bryant Electric, one of Bridgeport's largest employers at the time, is credited as the beginning of the city's economic downfall. Bill picks us up in one of his patrol boats in Bridgeport's Black Rock Harbor. The goal of today's excursion is to give these waters a quick checkup. And again, it's just a, it's a matter of how many people per square mile. And because they all need houses to live in, which have roads going to them, and the houses and the roads don't absorb water. They all use toilets, and it's got to go somewhere. Bridgeport is a city that is stressed by storm surge. The south end of Bridgeport was hit the hardest during Superstorm Sandy in 2012. And Tropical Storm Irene the year before, and basically every heavy rainfall since, especially in low-income and public housing neighborhoods. But you can see the color of the water here. This discoloration is from the uh, sewage overflows. When it rains, a lot of Bridgeport has pavement, and so that runs down the drains, and it combines into the sewage collection system. It's a very old style. But I think overall, Bridgeport is at a point now where they're um, paying more attention to their community. It's a change of pace. For a long time, the environment came second to the city's booming industry. But Bill says the community is beginning to have a better relationship with managing water. Connecticut has one of the most progressive sewage infrastructure, clean water funds in the country. If you're a combined sewer overflow community, which are typically more working class communities, they get served last. Um, they get, can get up to a 50% grant. To pay for a several hundred million dollar investment to upgrade sewers and water treatment plants. So uh, it makes it affordable for communities such as Bridgeport that may not have a huge tax base because there's a lot of working class people here. Um, and they can't, they can't afford to pay big bucks for um, their taxes. Again, we're on a boat ride around Bridgeport's Black Rock Harbor, which has a reputation around here for being, well, kind of nasty. We're also joined by a research team that is studying the impact of stormwater runoff and sewage. Ellie Gantz is a doctoral student at Yale. Yeah, so I'm taking mud samples today. So I have a very long rope connected to a grab sampler, which kind of looks like um, 
claw from a claw machine and it it drops to the bottom and then it snaps closed and you can get a pretty good sample of the benthos like what bill was talking about benthos those are small animals and microorganisms that live on the floor of the ocean so we're hoping to get some of these single-celled organisms called foraminifera Forminifera. Forminifera. It's really important that I can say it right. Yeah, so they're single-celled. They build shells, which are really beautiful. Um, and today I'm using them as bioindicators for water quality and environmental change. Those shells can reveal how acidic the water is as they'll decalcify with ocean acidification. Ellie lowers the contraption over the side of the boat. We're not too far outside of the marina, so the water isn't very deep. It doesn't take long for the claw to hit the bottom and grab a sample of mud. Did you feel it? Uh, I think it's heavier. Nice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Ellie hoists the sample back okay. on the boat into a bucket. So you can already smell that it's very sulfuric. That means that it's... Oh, that's a huge sample. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome anoxic so it does not have a lot of oxygen in in the mud the mud is thick and black and really sludgy looking she uses a spoon to scrape all of the sludge out to be looked at at the lab high school intern Jeanette Awal is observing in a word how would you describe it <laughs> I would say rotten eggs it does smell like rotten eggs yes. it smells pretty bad <laughs> Jeanette is a Bridgeport native. She scored this internship after participating in Horizons Bridgeport, an after-school program for underserved communities. I've just always been interested in science. I don't know, it's just been something that I've been fascinated in since a young age. This is home, Yeah. you know? And by doing this kind of stuff, you're, you're also seeing your home for all that it is, and you're also seeing like, okay, we can improve it. It's not, you know, all the things that we found at the bottom of the, of the water. Jeanette is just a few years older than our middle school student scientists. Maybe our time together exploring their city will have a lasting impact on them, too. Yeah, I definitely, like, there's days where I do go home and tell my parents about, like, the stuff that I learn in, like, out in the water, or even just in, like, meeting, Zoom meetings. Um, and when I tell them about it, like, they're just, they just tell me, oh, wow, I just never knew about that stuff. People don't know, sometimes don't know what's going on. Back at the Discovery Center, some of the students are also focused on the quality of water. Either what falls from the sky when it rains, floods from the coast when it storms, or bubbles up from the tap to drink. In some places, water is full of lots of chemicals and probably stuff that we wouldn't want to ingest. Things I don't even know of in our water system, and it's concerning that we're drinking that we don't know what it is. The Greater Bridgeport system is run by Aquarion Water, which is part of a much larger publicly traded utility company. It serves close to 400,000 people in the city and its neighboring towns. Some water is filtered through local treatment plants and some is filtered naturally underground. And, you know, I feel like we should stop using so much city water because I was looking up the chemicals in the city water and well this was just found in tap water in general some things found in tap water is like lead chlorine mercury uh chlorine can make your skin dry and so as your hair and that's found you could shower with it it's probably the best thing and um you know lead 
could damage your health in very small doses. The data shows that chemicals and other potential toxins have made their way from the polluted environment into Bridgeport's groundwater. And I feel that I don't want to be drinking such chemicals. You know, I don't know what those chemicals are. I can't even pronounce those chemicals. I shouldn't be putting anything in my body that I can't pronounce. When we come back, we'll take a look at how the kids would improve this process in their neighborhoods. This is Higher Ground from WSHU Public Radio, distributed by APM, American Public Media. Welcome back to Higher Ground from WSHU Public Radio, distributed by APM American Public Media. I'm Sabrina Garone. And I'm J.D. Allen. Back in the classroom, our student scientists wonder if more can be done by residents in their own homes. They feel rainwater could possibly be a cleaner, more sustainable solution. It's a filter that cleans rainwater, so it could be usable. Like, you could drink it, you could, like, normal water, tap water. Probably the size of a trash can, like a big trash can. The team gets to brainstorming. Taylor is doing some research on how something like this could be made for cheap. The cheesecloth, I know that um, one of, according to Google, cheesecloth can be biodegradable. No, it is not expensive because you clearly buy it off Amazon for like $5. Good quality too. Um, you can also wash cheesecloth if the quality is good enough. So you can reuse it for a few times. And they've even developed a prototype. So if you were to describe what's in your hand for people that can't see it, what is it? Two cups uh, together, and then the bottom part of one cup is cut off, and there's a filter like inside of the cup so it could clean the water. And now this is a much smaller version of something that you uh, have ideas for. Yeah. So when it rains, the water goes in through the filter, and the filter removes all of the bacteria bacteria inside of the water, and it goes inside and through the... There's going to be a mortar inside, and the mortar prevents the water um, from bacteria and flies laying eggs inside. Depending on how big we can get this, or how much rain you get in a year, I wouldn't completely turn off your water system, but I feel like it's a great backup, or at least your first source before you go to city water. While their prototype might need some work before we can drink from it, the students have identified that reusing rainwater is an underused resource for lawn care, bathing, and recreation. Wayne jumps in. Like, you can get a specially designed barrel for collecting rainwater, and whenever it rains, the water will just, you can just funnel the your gutters into the barrel. But you should clean the water if you're going to, like, drink it, like, literally. So it's better off like uh, gardening gardening, and uh, maybe washing your car or something. I love that. And, and, and rain barrels are an important tool in, um, you know, in, in reusing rainwater and preventing it, again, from getting down into the stormwater system. Drew Goldsman of the Nature Conservancy thinks the students are onto something special. And I would be uh, reluctant to encourage anyone to drink direct 
rainwater. Um, the rainwater itself is generally quite clean. We've addressed a lot of the acid rain issues of decades past, but it ends up being more so where does the rain fall and what does it pick up along the way? So unless you have some good filtration system, it's not recommended to drink it, but it's great for watering your plants or your garden or your yard or whatever it might be. So rainwater is a good and useful tool, according to the scientists, when it comes to sustainability and community resilience against climate change. We're taking a walk with Drew through Bridgeport's east side neighborhood. Along the sidewalk, Drew points to a small fenced-in garden that's meant to serve a few purposes. One of the critical ways in which um, nature can help us to um, kind of address acute climate challenges in in cities and then the built environment is through stormwater management. With some help from the city, the Nature Conservancy has been creating green stormwater infrastructure systems throughout Bridgeport. That's a solution to a few of the climate challenges our student scientists have identified. It looks to the naked eye like Kind of a little garden built into the sidewalk. You have a little bit of gravel, some dirt, shrubs, and some natural grass. Yep. Uh, But what's really happening here is that it is excavated. This was excavated out about six feet down. So there's kind of a layer cake of different materials. The the main chunk at the bottom being about three feet of uh, stone so that water can move down quickly. It's a very sandy soil on top. When it rains, so the water, uh, the water needs somewhere to go when we have all these hard surfaces. It rushes towards the sewers and it brings everything along with it by creating these um, little uh, grass and bushy pockets. It helps mitigate um, the stormwater runoff. And they help to store a lot of water and get that water to slowly infiltrate into the ground itself, um, which again helps to prevent that water from, in some areas, going directly to a wastewater treatment plant, which could lead to a sewer, a sewer combined sewer overflow. We can see the other reason for the tree plantings here in Washington Park. This park has some picnic tables, a basketball court, a playground, and a splash pad for the kids. It's pretty small, nestled between some old school looking churches, ornate townhomes, and the railroad. Um, Uh, Washington Park is kind of a classic New England square or green. Um, It really anchors kind of the southern tip of the east side neighborhood. It has a really solid and mature tree canopy, although um, much of it is now aging and deteriorating. And so there's an ongoing process of uh, kind of succession plantings. Um, and this space is covered with trees, unlike the city streets nearby. During our walk today, Connecticut is in the middle of a heat wave. So it's super hot outside. But we're walking right now under the shade of uh, pretty mature. We're looking at a maple here, and uh, it's really pretty dramatic, the difference of now that we're out of the shade to feel the heat beating down on us. And there are a lot of Bridgeport residents taking advantage of the tree canopy today. Like Malcolm and his son. It's hot, man. Yes, it is. Scorching hot. Very hot. It's like 90-something degrees out. My ball. Yes, Yes, it is. 90-something degrees. Must stay cool. So how are you staying cool this summer? Uh, Water park. uh, Plenty of hydration, which is water. Staying in the house. Stay cool. AC. Fan. uh, Keep the lights dim. As, no, as, uh, off as much as possible. Malcolm's six-year-old son is running through the park's splash pad with some friends. So how do you stay cool in a place like this? Well, I come to here, come to the tree. But when I really, ha- when I really want to play basketball, then I just go to the sun. 
But when I'm really hot, I just take a break and sit down right by the trees. It's good that they added a water park because, like, if we're playing basketball, we could just go to the water park if we get hot. So, I mean, that's very good. I mean, I'm jealous. I want to jump in. I got a little bit too much equipment on. Drew says intense heat. It's over 90 degrees today. Is a serious impact of climate change. Heat is the number one climate killer, as we've seen now across the United States and across Europe. Uh, heat, heat, heat waves are only going to get more and more extreme. And if we have neighborhoods without adequate canopy cover, they're going to become more and more um, risky for people to live in. He says urban forestry is a great way to beat the heat. We're lucky to get the benefit of, of the shade and the cooling that trees provide. You know, it's not just the shade itself. Um, it's a, a process known as evapotranspiration in which the trees are creating a cooler environment by um, kind of the processes in which they're processing water. And so um, it creates a, a cooling effect that is actually even more significant than the shade itself. According but to the Nature right Conservancy, Bridgeport has about 20% tree canopy cover overall, but it varies from neighborhood to neighborhood. The more suburban areas of the city have about 35 to 45% cover, and more heavily populated areas, like where we are today, range from only 7 to 12%. Drew wants to show us some efforts toward building up green spaces outside the park. Leaving the protection of the trees, we can instantly feel the difference in temperature. The few blocks we walk over, there are pretty much no trees, and we find ourselves taking breaks in every little bit of shade we can find. You know, the east side is, a, is an incredibly dense neighborhood, and you know by its very nature, that means we're going to be taking up less space overall for folks to live, work, and play, but it also means that we don't have as much room on any individual parcel to have trees and green space. And unfortunately, this is a neighborhood that has not um, or that has seen significant decline in its tree canopy over the years. Drew says because of this, the Nature Conservancy has given the east side some extra attention the last couple of years. Also working to make improvements to the city is Groundwork Bridgeport, a nonprofit organization that converts blighted areas in the city into gardens, playgrounds, and open space. So what goes into improving mostly the physical and also the social environment. Joining us on our walk is Tanner Bergdorf, who works with student volunteers for Groundwork Bridgeport. I was more interested in how public green space could be used as a means of kind of this public good that would benefit more than just an individual, but a whole neighborhood, uh, potentially even a whole city. Tanner takes us over to some recent plantings in a residential neighborhood. These trees are called pine oaks and they're native to this area of Connecticut. Tanner says that's on purpose. It's kind of becoming the new means by which you're making tree selections based off of, and they'll grow to be large um, shade trees. So basically trees that grow to a, a decent height and are then ultimately casting a larger amount of shade onto the street and the road. The trees are looking a bit scrawny at the moment, but they'll provide a vast area of shade. And some much-needed beautification once they grow to size. Uh, Drew Goldsman says this is a challenge. Trees take a long time to grow, and so that means every day and every, you know, and every year of their lives to get to a mature tree, it takes stewardship and care to make sure that they can make it through to finally provide 
that kind of suite of benefits that we all are really kind of yearning for. We're standing on While it takes some time, Tanner says this is an investment in the community. Not just with the projects themselves, but the partnerships created between yeah, so local organizations yeah. and Bridgeport residents who are passionate about making so a change. For students, you know, looking to make an impact in their own hometown, on their street, it's really about connecting with those who can help further the, the overall goal, um, whether it's tree planting, whether it's picking up litter at a local park or something like that. It's all kind of building trust over time with individual members of your community. In order to make your voice heard. So what do you do if your neighborhood is in need of some green space? Over the last few weeks, our student scientist Giancarlo explored what his block is lacking. A tree. I was like six, five years old. The owner had to cut it down because oh, it was interfering with the wires and with electricity. So he cut it down and then after that, my sister and I, we never went outside after, after that because it was so hot and we couldn't last for more than an hour. With the help of Wayne and Jerson, the boys get to brainstorming. Jerson says more trees might not keep the climate from warming, but it would certainly be easier to endure. It provides shade, even though uh, me and Giancarlo were arguing about it the other day, like how even though uh, there's shade, it doesn't really affect the temperature. But because of the sun always glaring down on you, you feel extra relief. When it comes to climate change, Wayne reminds us trees offer a lot more than just shade. When you deforest an area, the chances for landslides and mudslides are, are higher. And when you deforest an area, you're actually releasing a bit of CO2 into the air. You're cutting down forests, and that's not good for the environment like the ecosystem. You guys seem like you did a lot of research on the issue at hand for deforestation. Did you come across any solutions? John Carlo has an idea that can get residents involved. Uh, I was looking at acorns since they come from oak trees, and they have, and it's, it's the seed of it. So I would just say, just plant an acorn into the ground, or find the seed of it, and plant one like every two to one to two years, and and grow it. That's a good idea. Uh, so, who? should give out the eggcorns, and then who should plant them? I feel like it's everybody just go to like find a park out there that has a, that, that has like many acorns on the ground, that's squirrelsy, just, just take one, just take one, and go to your backyard, or somewhere that, or someplace that's not have trees, and just plant one there. More of our student scientists jump in. Is this something that could really work? Specifically acorns. Because it's mostly common. I haven't seen any other seeds out in the wild. If you were to plant an acorn, would it in like the 10 to 20 years someone will cut down that acorn tree again? Or would it be like a process of an acorn falling, somebody cuts down a tree, and somebody like be planting that acorn seed? Well, I'm, I'm saying that just plant in the backyard. If it's going to be in your backyard, no one's going to cut it down, but it's on your property. It's your decision if you want to cut it down or leave it there and use it as some place to cool off or have oxygen available. What strikes me is that like, I think youth led initiatives are so 
underrated, underappreciated, and ignored. That's Kat Morris. Remember, we brought the ideas of our student scientists to Bridgeport environmentalists for peer review. She says many of their perspectives could lead us into the future, helping to save the environment of their city. We're adapted to live on this earth. We have everything we need. We've evolved to have everything we need for quite a while now, right? So it does make sense to think, to follow that line of thought that like, hey, there are probably solutions here that we haven't figured out for a number of reasons. We're out of touch with our natural environment. We don't prioritize ecology. When we These student scientists became in touch with the ecology of their city because they were given space to explore during this after-school like program. Science. I feel like I didn't learn ecology until my senior year of high school. Um, we don't uh, think about solutions that are good for nature and people. We think about solutions that are good for like someone's bottom line, right? Someone's bank account. And so the opportunity is there. So what we've done with these students is that we've asked them and we've tried to give them the space to kind of discover climate change for themselves mm -hmm. in their own neighborhoods. Yeah. Like I was having these thoughts and feelings for so long before I could figure out how to communicate them, before I could figure out how I wanted to do something with them. And what allowed me was the time to just sit down with my thoughts and actually think they're valid. I think that's also something that you give the kids that I think is really important and to like log. And I want to note and appreciate that when you give people a space to be curious, when you give people the time to connect with others and have intellectual exchange, you're allowing the capacity of their minds to grow, but you're also then expanding what they can make out of their life. Teenagers are observant, despite what their parents might say. I would argue they are actually more plugged into world events than we realize through so much media consumption. They see Greta Thunberg, who started work on climate change at age 15 by holding a school strike for climate action in Sweden. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? Now she's calling out big government and world leaders to demand swift policy changes to prevent environmental catastrophe. In an effort to listen to the perspectives of young people, we've made our student scientists the center of our storytelling universe. Because we are already seeing devastating signs of climate change, because the already dramatic changes we will see in our environment will intensify in their lifetime. And they have questions about who's responsible for the future. Why aren't we making drastic changes sooner? That's a really, 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 really big picture question. Who's they? Um, world leaders and us. <laughs> okay, so world leaders, like people that make decisions that impact the entire world and us. Yes. Okay. Us as in like a world or like as in a country or like a city or like a town, you know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? I agree with that. It doesn't really take too much to change something or somebody. You don't have to like commit, commit. You can literally just do little to nothing. So if I'm understanding you, it's like if we all just do a little bit of something, something bigger can happen. Yeah, in a way, yeah. You should try to, you know, do a little thing and that could lead to something much greater.
You never know. The point is, these teenagers aren't childish. They didn't whine about how adults were responding to climate decisions that will affect their future. Instead, these young people asked important questions. They took the skills they learned in school to research solutions for their neighborhoods. I was surprised that they were so forward-thinking. All these teens want is to share their insight for the world they are going to inherit. Imagine the lessons young people in your neighborhood have to contribute. is produced and mixed by Sabrina Garone and me, J.D. Allen, with editing from Harriet Jones. Molly Ingram assisted with the mixing. Samantha Simon, Melanie Formosa, and Megan Briggs did fact-checking and research. Graphic art by Joshua Joseph. Music is composed by Samuel Davies and Aria Elon. Higher Ground is a production of WSHU Public Radio. The Discovery Science Center is operated by Sacred Heart University, which is also the licensee of WSHU. This production was made possible by the Joan Gantz Cooney Center and Sesame Workshop. Thank you to Miss Michelle and the kids for participating in this production. And thank you for taking this journey with us. Don't hold your head down. Keep your head you can turn. Higher Ground is distributed by APM American Public Media.